That's a good job. Thanks, man. Um, so I enjoyed doing worship last week, but I'm so glad she's back, aren't you? Hey, hey. Come on, not that glad. Give me a break. No. It's really good. We got a good team. Um, my name is Joe Davis. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we have one more week after this of Psalm 119. And then we'll start season two, like I was saying. <clears throat> Just kidding. We're going we're gonna to go to 2 Corinthians. But next week, our last sermon in the series on Psalm 119, we're celebrating the Lord's table. So what we like to do at Grace Life is, you know, we want to make sure the Lord's table is, is honored. We don't want to do it like, you know, I know in past I've been at church and I would show up one week, oh, it's Lord's table today. I didn't know that. I don't want it that way. I want everyone to know a couple weeks ahead of time, hey, we're celebrating the Lord's table. It's a big deal. So next week, in, in the spirit of Thanksgiving season, that's what we're going to do. Okay? Yes. The Lord's table is, uh, you're going to, I'll explain next week. It's a good question. So if you don't know the Lord's table, come next week. So um, that's a good one. Um, but this week, the name of the sermon is Kissing Trophies. Yes, that's right. You heard me. Kissing Trophies. So let's read the passage. I'm going to go through. This is week 21 of 22. Let me read the passage. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. So I want to talk about the historical part of this passage. The word of God is David's great spoil. I'm going to explain to you what he means by finding great spoil. The first word I'm going to look at is that word in the first part of the passage says princes persecute me. The word princes, it means chief captain, a general, a prince or a ruler. Really, it has the idea of a military leader, somebody who's in charge of an army. And he's saying, I am under invasion and I've done nothing to deserve it. But there are kings and generals who are coming after me. The next word is this uh, Hebrew word. Pachad, it means to be startled or stunned. He says, princes persecute me, generals are coming after me, but I stand in awe. And it means to be startled, stunned, something so beautiful that it takes your breath away. He says, in the very midst of having generals wanting to destroy me, to destroy my army, to destroy my country, in the midst of that threat, in the midst of that crisis, I am stunned and startled at the awe of your word. The next word is this word sus. To be bright, cheerful, glad. It comes from the word, I rejoice at your word. So in the heels of describing a battle, describing being pursued by a general, he says, they want to kill me, but I'm stunned by your word, and it causes me to rejoice like one who finds great spoil. And that's the last word, shalal. It means booty, bounty from a battle, or a great treasure. This is specifically something you find in the midst of a battle. Something you find because you have defeated an enemy. So what happens here, guys? 
The, the psalmist describes his love for God's word by painting a picture of kings and the spoils of victory. The greatest possession of a king would be the spoils of war taken from defeated enemies. These possessions, understand why, these possessions would display his prowess, his power, his success. It would serve to intimidate those around him. See, finding spoil in the midst of a battle would be the most exhilarating experience an ancient world king could ever have. To me, this specifically points to the internal evidence that David was the author of Psalm 119. He understood what it meant to be a king. He understood what it meant to be in a battle, to have someone want to kill him, and at the same time win that battle and find great victory. A great example of this is a story of David and Goliath. You guys remember that story where David took a slingshot and killed the champion of the Philistines, this seven foot eight Shaquille O'Neal type soldier? And what did David do? The scripture says, chopped the guy's head off and carried him back to town. This is my trophy. And it brought him great fame. The scripture even says, Saul has slain thousands. Saul was David's king, but David has slain his 10,000. So what happened was that trophy was exhilarating for David. It made him very popular among the people because he had defeated this horrible champion. He is one who'd seen many acquisitions of spoils from war. But here's what he says. In the midst of that, his greatest spoil, the treasure he adored and cherished the most, was God's word. God's word was more precious to him than anything he could ever lose in defeat, like spoil that he could lose from somebody defeating him, or anything he could gain in victory, spoil he might find defeating someone else. He defines describing this greatest spoil during tremendous times of anxiety and threat. Sometimes he's staring defeat right in the eyes. And since most of us can't really relate to finding spoil in war, I've come up with a really good illustration to help you understand. Okay? You ever seen anybody do this when they win a championship? <laughs> as an OCD guy, I've won, you know, as a coach, I've won my share of trophies. I don't want to kiss any of them. Especially with the player's grimy hands have been all over them. But this guy, he's cussing the trophy. What about this one? LeBron, he's hugging it like, oh, this is my, this is the tro NBA, the Naismith Award. You know, the, I, I won the basketball championship. And then there's this one, Michael Jordan. He won a basketball. He's crying. I love this trophy. It's great. It's my greatest spoil. In the midst of a possible defeat, I win this trophy. And then there's this one. What you don't see is his lips stuck to it because of the snow. <laughs> he had to walk around with it for four weeks. <laughs> Guys, it's an amazing experience that David had that he's describing as it relates to God's word. So let's talk about the theological part of this. Treasure in a battlefield. When you see God's word as this unbelievable trophy of victory during battle, during times of threat, it brings about a joy that the burden of the hardship can't come close to erasing. And David makes comparisons to how this precious treasure 
was a stunning find. It was the answer, in fact, to his anxiety. Now, I have to stop right there. I called Daryl on Friday to help me with the sermon, and he told me God's word, the spoil of God's word, is the answer to David's anxiety. So I have to give credit where credit's due on that. I really wanted to take credit for it so bad here today. But at the last second, I had to, okay? So here's what happens when you have God's word, when you see God's word as the greatest spoil. And David describes it in the verse to come. First of all, there's a hatred of untruth. In verse 163, he says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. There is nothing the world can offer you that you will love more than God's word if you truly see it as your greatest spoil. The things that you thought were valuable before you discovered the spoil of God's word, they aren't appealing anymore. And once you've tasted God's truth, falsehood is no longer appealing. So I wanted to explain to you how this happens. You see that? That is the best pizza on the planet. It comes from, no, that's coal-fired pizza. It's not burnt. Girl, watch it. So, Lombardi's Pizza on Spring and Mott in Manhattan. When our family first moved to New York, you know, I'd had a life of Papa John's and Domino's and Pizza Hut. And when I moved to New York, I discovered all that was just cheese toast. (laughs) This is pizza. And here's what happened. I'll still eat cheese toast if it's put in front of me. But I really kind of am a little angry and bitter that they try to sell it to me as pizza. Like Pizza Hut, you, don't serve, you serve cheese toast. Just, just be honest about what you're serving here. And when I first tasted, it was like the first time I walk into Lombardi's with a friend of mine. He says, I'm buying you some pizza today. I said, great, I like pizza. He goes, no, you don't understand. I'm buying you pizza. It's going to change your life. Oh, come on, give me a break. <laughs> so we walk into Lombardi's. We sit down. We order the pizza. It was such an emotional experience for me. <laughs> From that day forward, I hated and abhorred falsehood when it came to pizza. (laughs) Those of you that have been to New York, or maybe some, you know, you know what I'm talking about. This Lombardi's pizza, it was the first ever pizza place in America. Did you know that? It's only one of a couple of places that are allowed still because of being grandfathered in by the laws to actually have coal-fired ovens. Because, you know, it's a city and it could burn up. It's amazing. This tremendous prize that you have discovered and has stolen your heart, the word of God, leaves no more room or power in your life for untruth. Then there is this. There's continuous praise. Verse 164, he says, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Psalm 34, verse 1, and Hebrews 13, 15. I'm just going to read these to you. Here's what David says in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Here's what happens. I want you to make sure you understand. When he says seven times I praise you, it's not about a number. It's about what occupies your thoughts, your daily routine. It's not a constant, you know, bow your head and close your eyes kind of thing. It's not a constant, oh, I've always got the Joy FM on in my car. That's, what, that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is this, God's word was such an incredible find, an amazing trophy of war. It was an amazing spoil, an amazing thing, this treasure. 
that it gives me reason to keep talking about it constantly, even in the midst of sorrow and anxiety, all I can think about was this victory through God's word. It's kind of like when your team wins a championship. Dylan won't shut up for months. It's disgusting. I hate it. But even, get, guys, get this. Even when we realize that God's word is such a great trophy, even when our burdens should dominate us, and dominate our every word and thought, God's stunning, awesome truth remains our conversation. It remains our, for, our, our source for morality. It remains the directive for our lifestyle. It consumes our private thoughts, and it directs our decisions. And nothing can stop us from talking about it or acknowledging, yes, it's a rough time, but I have this treasure. Yes, I've lost a loved one but I have this treasure. Yes, I don't know what's going to happen with my job, but I have this treasure. I'm struggling right now in my relationship with my family and with my friends, or my husband or wife, but I have this treasure. And the treasure is so great that even in the midst of your anxiety and hardship, you have great spoil. Then there's... Just a couple more things that it does. It gives you incorruptible peace. Verse 165. This is so important. Because God's word is his greatest spoil, he says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. The world around us, church, is designed to steal your peace. It's designed to give you promises of hope and then break your heart as it never delivers. But the peace of finding the spoil of God's word, even during threat, is something the world cannot duplicate and it cannot take away. When God's word is your spoil, no threat, no defeat, no danger can destroy the peace that is the fact that your hope for salvation is in the Lord. It's wholly satisfying effect on your heart and soul is this unwavering peace even during war or impending death. Paul understood this concept of peace while facing death, even as he wrote in prison, facing execution in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Here's what Paul says. While he's facing death, he writes to the church in Philippi, which, by the way, he adored. Might have been his favorite church. He says... Do not be anxious about anything. What? You're about to get your head cut off. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, do you hear that? Surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Here's what he means. You know what the peace that passes understanding means? It's peace so crazy it blows your mind. What? I am facing execution, and I can tell you, Philippians, even in the midst of knowing that I'm about to die, what I can tell you is this. I have peace that boggles my mind because my spoil is the word of God. It's not this life. Then the last thing it does for you is pleasure in obedience. Verse 166 to 168. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, 
and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Something valued greatly, some great trophy, some great spoil, some great treasure, you will have it on display. You will remember it, it will be kept close by, and you will keep it safe. And each time you hold this trophy and you follow it, it brings you back to that moment you first stumbled upon it in the first place. We find joy and fulfillment and comfort in obeying this great trophy. We have joy in following it. Even during sorrow and anxiety, our heart is inclined to cling to this trophy, this treasure, this spoil, this grace that took our breath away in the midst of battle when we first found it. Because our obedience to this great spoil, this treasure of God's word, brings unbelievable satisfaction. It keeps the reminder of that moment we first discovered truth fresh in our heart and fresh in our mind. Isn't that good stuff? So let me tell you what the devotional part of this. Save your kisses. So many of you know I coached high school sports for about 20 years, and uh, one of them was basketball. And I remember the feeling when I won my, as a coach my first championship. I was coaching in South Carolina, and when the season started, we were horrible. I mean, we were terrible. We were miserable. And I fancied myself a good coach, and it was quite embarrassing. We were getting blown out by 20, 30, 40 points. And I said, what in the world is going on? And then suddenly, halfway through the season, it started to click for me and our team. And now the games were closer. And then we started beating some of the teams that had killed us earlier in the year. And we kept winning. And we won like 10, 12, 13, 14 games in a row. And now we were starting to put it on other people. We made it to the championship. And we faced a team who had beaten us twice. The first time they beat us was by 45 points. The second time they beat us by 15. It's still a bad loss. They came into the game. They were arrogant. They knew they had crushed us just five weeks before and followed it up with a Another crushing that wasn't as bad, but it was still bad. And here it is. It's a close game. And they're getting panicky. How is this team sticking with us? Well, I'll tell you how. We had gotten better. The players had bought in. The coach had wised up. We changed the way we played defense. We changed the way we played offense. And in the end, we started pulling away. And for the last three minutes of the game, we were up by 8, 10, 15, then 17 points. And the celebration started early. And then as the clock ticked down, four, three, two, one, the buzzer goes off. We all run to the middle of the court. We're jumping up and down. We're excited. I'm hugging my players. They smell like, uh, but I don't care. We're, we just won a chance. It's my first championship. Guys, I'm just going to tell you, it was euphoric. It was one of the most exciting or maybe, maybe the most exciting moment of my coaching career that I can remember to this day. I still have the trophy. I've got the video of the game. It's on VCR, so I can't really watch it anymore, but, you know, <laughs> it's etched in my mind. I got to tell you guys, that was fun.
I mean, I'm just, that was fun. And I remember when we won and we're celebrating, and afterwards, the newspaper is there. They're talking to the players. They're talking to me. Parents are coming up. You know, the ones that wanted me fired six weeks ago, now they love me. That was fun. No, no, that was fun. Man, that was fun. How you like me now? Words cannot express how thrilling it was to celebrate with my players at midcourt this amazing victory. It gave me great joy to hold the trophy with them. And I loved for like, a, I loved talking about it for like a year. Okay, 10 years, but still. And it just, <laughs> and it shows, it showed what happens when you play the game the right way. Guys, that feeling I just explained to you, that's what David is describing about how he feels about God's word. He says, I just feel like I won an amazing championship and this is my trophy. But in the end, a trophy can break, it can rust, it actually gets sold at garage sales. It's a temporary thing. Honestly, I don't even know where that trophy is anymore. It was one of the greatest moments of my coaching career, and I don't even know where it is anymore. Because the trophy pales in comparison to the one that I love the most, the crown of life. That's the trophy that I really want to kiss. And so David talks about, I mean, Paul talks about this, knowing his audience that he's writing to, the Corinthians, they understood Olympic competition. And Paul uses this idea of pursuing an Olympic prize to understand the real prize. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. In other words, they work hard. But they do it to receive a perishable prize. But we, an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating in the air. In other words, there's a purpose to everything I do. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have reached or preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And he talks about this idea of running toward a prize. The picture of running and boxing is synonymous with a pursuit of love for God's word. We do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to find this great treasure, this great spoil, this great trophy that within its pages give us the crown of life. It's a picture of pursuing the ultimate trophy that any of us could ever receive. That's the trophy worth kissing. Imagine that feeling. I just talked about this championship I won, and that you, I mean, it was an unbelievable rush. Imagine that feeling when through God's word, because we've heard the gospel, that we celebrate that ultimate victory. That one moment where we finally come face to face with our Savior, and he says, you won. You won. All the things you went through with your struggles, physically, emotionally, spiritually, the training you went through, the hardship, all those things, you found the truth of the gospel, and you have won the crown of life. Can you imagine the euphoria you will feel in that day? It will make all your greatest moments on this earth pale in comparison. 
That time you got that first great job. Maybe you won a championship. Maybe you got that one person to finally fall in love with you. I don't know. Whatever it is that makes none of those things will compare to that moment where you celebrate in the middle of the court with Jesus and his church. Guys, we won. Look at this one. I love what Paul says here. He says this to Timothy. Near the end of his life, he writes this to Timothy, who was like his, uh, you know, apprentice. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. You see how it compares to what he says in the Corinthians? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Now, that's a trophy which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the trophy that David was talking about. The spoil that brought him love of truth, continuous praise, incorruptible peace and pleasure in obedience, what would you consider today, church, listen, what would you consider today your greatest trophy? What would you consider your greatest moment? That's a hard one, isn't it? After reflecting on this all week, I have to say it wasn't that championship. It wasn't the day I got married. It wasn't the day we started Grace Life. It was the moment I found the greatest spoil on earth, God's word. Dad, there's a lot of things that clamor for our attention in this world. There's a lot of things that seek to steal our peace and our joy. But through the gift of faith, you have given us the greatest trophy, the crown of life, through a relationship with your truth. Amen. As soon as I saw what...